E-Appliances and Air and Water Solutions is dedicated to serving the unique needs of the plumbing, heating, and ventilation and air conditioning industry. GE has launched a robust product portfolio that includes water heaters, water filtration, commercial HVAC, ductless, and ducted HVAC. The GE team is focused on putting the pros at the center of our business by delivering an iconic, trusted brand that is easy to sell, an innovation that makes installation easier, and dedicated to support that makes doing business simpler. At GE, we call this being pro-centric. To learn more and request information about GE, go to geappliancesairandwater.com. That's geappliancesairandwater.com. In the last 25 years, Louis D'Souza has seen the company he founded, NFS Technology, rise to become a leading international software and services business with offices in the UK, USA, India, Australia, and South Africa. NFS has 100 plus staff internationally and serves over 1,800 clients. Good morning. Hello, Mark. How are you? Long, long time, and my apologies for my long silence <laughs> no worries uh this is audio only though just so you know okay not a problem i'm very happy to switch off the video but mainly because i have a face for radio so there's that okay whatever works whatever works. <laughs> good morning mark madison here on books and people today i'm so excited to have our special guest from across the pond. Louis, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mark. I wish you a happy new year and blessings for 2024. Oh, that's kind. Uh, that's exactly how you were when we met. Where was that exactly? We met, if you remember, in the Isle of Wight in that wonderful hotel with uh, that character, David. Do you remember him? David and his wife, yeah, Haven Hall. <laughs> indeed, indeed. That was a special place. I've been to a few B&Bs, and that's uh, that's special. That was very, very nice. Both the people that were there and David himself, and actually the setting was unbelievable, exactly as it was advertised. Magnificent. Really, truly a wonderful place. You, uh, We kind of hit it off, didn't we? We got talking, and then you met my family as well. So you met my kids and my wife and their yes. other halves. So I think you've met us all. Two strapping sons. <laughs> Thank you. So, we uh, you're the CEO of NFS. NFS Technology, yeah. Yes. There. How did you? Well, let's go. Let's go way back. What are your fondest childhood memories? Uh, my fondest childhood memories actually are of my father, um, who is a passionate a gentleman, who is very, uh, very keen for me to become someone in technology he was uh so he sent me to be an engineer and uh he was very disappointed when i went to business school he says this is not a real job <laughs> but you know i after three years of studying chemical engineering i decided that it wasn't my calling and you know i had to make that important decision and one night over a very nice uh, glass of beer i wasn't into wine in those days couldn't afford it 
I, I broke the news to him and that was a, a quite a life-changing moment for me because I was actually, you know, petrified for like two weeks to tell him that I wasn't going to do my master's in chemical engineering and pursue a, a you know, a career in the engineering field. And it, it, it kept me awake for many nights, I'll tell you that. Father's expectations. Well, indeed. And I think he always, you know, I had, I did very well at maths and, and he, he had this, he never got the opportunity to go to university. So he always, you know, had this great ambition that one or both of his sons, my brother did engineering and ended up spending many years with an American company in Germany and then ended up leaving engineering and going into business as well with Oracle. <laughs> so, you know, but my father had then come to terms with the reality of life and not uh, taken it as harshly as when I broke the news to him. Yeah, push water uphill. Indeed, indeed. Where did you go to university? I went to Imperial in London, so that was a, a great place to study. I, I met some amazing people from all over the world, and, and it was, uh, you know, I guess there was uh, my fondest memory, you asked the original question, um, I, I, I think some of my formative parts of my character were formed at university because at school, um, I was very focused on the academia and, and to, the, to, the, to the detriment in some way of personal character development because, you know, I was in a school that was, I went to a Jesuit school. It was very study intensive. And I, I missed out on, on some of the finer things in life. But uh, in the university, I was uh, living living on campus and having a wild time and also exposing myself to all sorts of interesting people from uh, many, many different walks of life. And that's where I met my wife. And I you know, chose to go and learn ballroom dancing. Wow, that's impressive. Didn't see that on the resume. I know it wasn't. I kept it. I kept it a low key, gender <laughs> item for special conversations only. I think of the movie True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where all of a sudden he breaks out into, into ballroom dancing, and everybody's staring at him. So that was you. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a Jesuit school here in Seattle, and it's pretty rigid. You know, pretty structured and uh, high expectations. Yeah. So your first job was what? I went to uh, my first job. I went straight from doing my degree in chemical engineering to London Business School, where I did my MBA and worked. Uh, in fact, the first job project that I did at my business school was actually for Shell. <laughs> Funny enough, you couldn't get away from engineering, but it, right. uh, it was the only, it was the nearest thing to engineering that I did in my MBA. Uh, and I was attracted to it because. I thought I must use some of what I've learned in the last three years. <laughs> some of that chemical engineering, yeah. Yeah, so I did I did a project which lasted uh, one summer, and then the next project I did was at McKinsey, and McKinsey was a consulting firm that you know well. Yeah. Um, it was a project I thoroughly enjoyed, but I very soon realized that when you join McKinsey as a junior, you're doing a lot of the... Um, the detailed analysis and heavy lifting, but you're never really spending too much time with the client or getting the or getting to do the fun side of stuff that was always done by people who've been there a few years. And I got bored with doing one project after another and never really, uh, I, I wanted some action at the time and I was not getting right. any of the action. 
doing all the research I, and somebody else getting all the credit. I, absolutely. So when I got headhunted by Ford, Ford were looking at, you know, people to to join their their product team. And I was always interested in cars. So I thought, wow, this is like a nice uh, opportunity. And I stayed at Ford for about three years, um, ended up uh, on the project team of one of the major European cars moving from rear wheel drive to front wheel drive all those years ago, which was very exciting. And I learned yes. a tremendous amount at Ford. Actually, I learned more at Ford than I learned at McKinsey's. Ford is a great, was a great teaching ground for me in those formative years. And just that backstory of Henry Ford, is, you know, is fascinating. Uh, like you, I'm a student of history, and, and Ford was certainly one of the most dynamic. We're going to belt the world with automobiles, he said. Yeah. Got to love that. So you have two sons. How did becoming a father change your focus, your mindset, your motivation? Um, it changed it in two ways. The first was that I suddenly realized that there were other things in life which I hadn't even thought about because they kind of take over your life very quickly when they arrive. Um, so, you know, <laughs> whether you're ready or not, whether you're ready or not, it's a full on, uh, full on assignment, as it were. And the second thing that I realized is the is probably quite an emotional and soppy thing to say, but uh you realize that at least I did that you've you've got this little person that you know you feel such a deep love for that you've never felt for anything else uh, before, and it's just unbelievable. I think it's that human connection. It's that you know it's yours. It's so many emotions that go through uh, your life at the time, and suddenly you realize you know this the dependency of that life on you and what you do. And, and how you live your life, which was kind of really formative for me, because I grew up in the Margaret Thatcher years where, you know, uh, as she said famously, there isn't anything called society, which I profoundly disagree with. And when, when my sons arrived a few years later, I realized that there was much more to life than, than the self. Right. So that was that was very profound experience of, you know, being thrown in the deep end into fatherhood. Yeah, all of a sudden you realize I'm responsible for these little creatures. Indeed. The Indeed. maturation process is sped up dramatically as a result. So Yeah. And not yeah, only we... responsible, I'm also now having to put them as the first priority in my life as opposed to all the other less important things that have preoccupied me for all those years. Right. All of a sudden, work life balance becomes and, important. and money yeah. and, you know, maybe some fancy holidays, which I really didn't need and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, when they handed me that baby, I realized, you know, I had to grow up pretty fast. Yeah, that was the same realization I had. And I, I realized also how ill-equipped I was. Right. Role. It's like learning to play the piano and or violin in public, you know, it's like. Yeah. Nailing jello to a tree, a friend of mine once said. And I said, yeah, that sounds about right. That's about right, yeah. So who were your mentors coming up? You mentioned Ford as being a... Kind Ford of a, as a being leader. a kind of a formative, um, you know, part of my training. But I, I had many, many mentors across a wide spectrum, actually. One of the first people that I really admired is Kennedy. 
Um, and I admired him for many reasons. And I also found out later that there were things that I should have known about him, which I didn't know at the time. But uh, I, I admired him for, you know, his clarity of thought. I admired him for his decisiveness. I admired him for his leadership quality. So that was one end of the spectrum. And uh, the other person that I got to, uh, you know, really admire in terms of uh, a human being was Nelson Mandela. Mm. Um, I never got the chance to meet him, one of my colleagues, because we'd opened up in South Africa just when he got released from prison. And the from Robin Island, who's 27. Yeah, years. I yeah. went to Robin Island more than once. And when, when uh, one of my uh, my general managers in South Africa told me that he had been invited to uh, a meeting and had met Nelson Mandela. I was just overawed. It was just, you know, an amazing thing. And he said, uh, you cannot imagine the aura or the kindness and humanity of the man. He says, it's just, there's something about him that, you know, defies uh, normal uh, expression in conversation. Right. He realized that getting to know the guards and building a relationship with them through rugby and understanding their passion for that was one of the turning points for him to eventually, you know, get his way out. Uh, and you know, I we remember... don't have that sort of leadership in so many parts of the world today. And that's where we struggle. Look at the Middle East right now. Mm -hmm. On either side, there isn't that... Uh, ability to lead and think and forgive and, uh, you know, accept things that need to be accepted. And right. um, it's it's a great challenge in many parts of the world. And I think one of our big challenges is leadership today. In your biography, you talk about essentially being people-centered. It's about, all about the people. And that was certainly true for Mr. Mandela. But... Uh, Talk a little bit about that, if you would. Oh, so just a quick side note. Because I've read a couple of biographies on Mandela's life, he put honey in his coffee and his tea. So I do, too. I figured, hey, he lived to be 95. The honey can't hurt. <laughs> Fortunately for me, Mark, I, I, I stopped taking sugar a little while ago in either my tea or my coffee. <laughs> but I do put honey in my porridge and other things where I have an opportunity. It's the perfect food. I'm sure it is. So you <laughs> so, asked me a great question. So just repeat your question so I, I've got the clarity that uh, that I can respond to. Well, you said JFK and, and Nelson Mandela, and those are two, two to, to me, two heroes of history, you know? Yeah. Kennedy said, in this decade, we shall put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth. What a... What a vision. 1962, Rice University, he blew everybody away yep. by saying, because we were in a race with the Russians, you know, and it was vital, you know, to national security. And, and he, you know, he was a brilliant guy. Uh, certainly one of my heroes as well. Who, who, who else, who other people, which, which other mentors had an impact on you? Well, I actually was very uh, attracted to many of the tenants of Margaret Thatcher in terms of her earlier period in office, you know, when she made, I think, some very good decisions on the direction of the country. 
like tackling some of the malaise in industrial relations that we had. But I think like many leaders, uh, and Mandela was an exception, he didn't allow his success to go to his head. Right. So he was very balanced in terms of recognizing that he was there, not because of you know, a personal man a mandate, he was there uh, by the mandate of the people, and those were the people he had to serve and their interests were his first priority. And I think Thatcher got a little bit uh, waylaid with successes she had in the Falklands War and others, and actually, in some way, made a number of mistakes, both in terms of the things she said and the things she did through the latter part of you know, her premiership. So that was probably something that I started by being very enamored with her her perspective, uh, you know, particularly as the first female prime minister, and then getting a little bit disillusioned in the last four years of her premiership uh, with a very hard-nosed approach to humanity and society, which I thought actually created many of the problems that we're still living with today. Um, and, you know, some of those problems are going to take a very strong and magnanimous leader of her caliber to reverse. <laughs> and I don't sadly see that on the horizon right now. You talk about essentially solving complex business problems through innovation and technology, but you also talk about how important it is to have the right people on your team. Talk a little bit about yeah, those, that. Those two things, I think, are very... Uh, related as much as they may seem very diverse in terms of finding solutions. So what challenges me intellectually is the complexity of the problem and also the ability to think laterally about issues rather than just sometimes you get into, into a rut. And I myself have been there where you see something and you think, you know what, you keep fighting the problem without looking outside of the problem, sometimes at the deeper roots of the problem or alternative solutions to the problem. Technology is not the solution to every problem. And we saw that vividly. I'll give you an example in the pandemic when, you know, organizations were struggling to, to, to get people back to the office, to make them feel safe, to make them right. feel welcomed in the office. And they threw loads of money at technology. And, and I was part of that problem because what we did not see at the time is the fears and the relevance of the human element of what we were trying to do. So we were process driven by the things that we were trying to achieve, which is return to work, was a return to the office was a big priority. Right. But what we were not seeing were the fears, the changes in aspiration, the, in, the extent to which uh, the workforce had actually realized that they could be more productive from home. So we were almost fighting a battle to change that. And I think we've lost that battle a year ago. Right. Because now you're not going to get people unnecessarily coming to sit at a desk in the office. And I, my argument is, why should they? Right. So, you know, I think we've been through this process of saying, 
you can solve technical problems and technology is a very good way uh, to, to, to find those solutions. But actually, very often those solutions, the true long-term sustainable solutions, however complex they are, can only be found by understanding the human dynamic of what you're trying to do. And, you know, like you and, and many people in business and leadership, we sometimes, and I, I'm guilty as anyone else, of failing to understand and appreciate that and, and the nuances, because we are all so different as human beings. So the nuances of why something might be important to one person and not to another uh, in creating the solution, which adds even more complexity, is becoming, I think, now the realization in business that we've got to not just have the logical skills and the maybe the business insights, but we've increasingly got to take the human dimension on board in constructing the problem solution, which you know is uh, is very challenging, and it's an exciting challenge because we suddenly realize and appreciate that you know. Through humanity uh, and, and through our existence, we are fundamentally, you know, guided by, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I think the moment we forget that, I think we make some very bad calls in business. I have an oversimplified description of that, that every single employee is asking three questions. Is it safe? You know, am I safe in every way? Uh, do I belong? Is there a sense of family? And do I have a future? And those are the three relevant questions. And and if the answer is no to any of those three, they're going to leave. And not for $2 an hour more across the street, but rather because those fundamental needs haven't been met. Mm. And I think the pandemic has actually changed something else. Um, in the sense, even if, those, and, uh, even if those needs have been met, if we do not recognize some of the unique uh, aspects of people's needs and behaviors, uh, we may be at the superficial level meeting those three needs, but we're not meeting their deeper needs, which are maybe around other things that work, which are driving people away. And, and sometimes it's, you know, very simple things. I'll relay a conversation to you, which I had last year with a member of staff who's no longer with us, and I was very sad to lose that person. And the, 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 the conversation was, you know, Lewis, you have stopped being my friend uh, as a result of the pandemic because I never see you. I never have an opportunity to talk to you in the corridor. I never have that one-to-one -one relationship that made me feel special, not belong, but special, which I had with you in the pre-pandemic era. And that was the reason that kept me at NFS and kept me here and kept me happy. But I felt in the last year that, you know, that relationship has been lost. And I started to look around and I found somewhere where I can, you know, regain that relationship, that very personal relationship, which was important to that individual. You so it's these little nuances that, you know, make major differences. You had a shift in awareness. Absolutely. Shift in priorities, which I, you know, did not perceive as being something that was an important priority that I should have um, allocated more time to, I guess. Yeah. Do you, 
do you feel exit interviews are important? And and if so, do you conduct them or do you have somebody else do it from the outside? It's a hybrid situation. Um, so with the leadership team, I, I tend to uh, have a situation where we have deep conversations at least once a month, uh, sometimes outside of work over a glass of wine or over lunch. Mm. And, and the conversations are focused mainly around them as individuals. The work piece of the conversation tends to be the last 20 minutes of the hour. So I find that to be a very good way of understanding what's going on in their lives. And I think if you can, if you can unravel what's going on in someone's life, you can then immediately gauge the things that are important to them on the one hand, and the challenges that you can help them with on the other. Well, if you start off with a work agenda, you know, where are you on these 10 checklist items that we agreed the last time? You miss that opportunity of what I call a human connection. Yes. Well, it's two to one, isn't it? So two family, personal, then business, not the other way around. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it really, it speaks to, I care about you as a person. You know, I, one of the finest leaders I ever met, I, I watched him one day. And one of my first consulting clients, and he would say, how was your weekend and how's your family doing? It was always the first question out of his mouth. And then it was, oh, by the way, almost like a postscript. You know, here's, a, here's the thing we need to get done today. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's really. And I'm sure his success time. was related in, in part to that approach. Oh, he had he had he had me. He had me help him hire a couple of salespeople. He had seven people wanting to come to work for him, and he had to decide which two he was going to pick. His name was Norm, and I said, Norm, how do you how do you get so many people wanting to come to work for you? He said, I create the kind of culture that people want that are they're attracted to. And to your point, you know, family, personal life, and then business. Yeah, always works. I think it was Zig Ziglar said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he was quoting Teddy Roosevelt. So it's one of those things where you just go, huh? So do you subscribe to Jim Collins uh, kind of three point formula of where's the bus going? Who's on the bus and are they on the right seat on the bus? Yeah. I've done some of that work with one of uh, my, uh, my, my coaches about a year ago, uh, just after the pandemic, we used some of that thinking uh, to help me really to realign and rethink the priorities of the leadership team. Because through the pandemic, we had got rather disconnected from each other at two levels. We got disconnected at a personal level, because although we talked about, you know, uh, family situations, or oh, my uncle is in hospital, or he's got COVID, we didn't really focus enough time on how am I feeling working from home, uh, being isolated, not being able to have human connection. There were times when, you know, we wanted to meet just for a drink, for a coffee, we couldn't do that. So we did a lot of that thinking and I developed a number of uh, approaches to how I was going to, you know, sort the bus out as it were at the end of the pandemic using that sort of approach. Right. Well, I probably should have started with how's your father-in-law doing and have you navigated through that challenge? I'm I'm sad to tell you that he passed away just before Christmas. So oh, that's uh, that's the bad news. 
but I'm I'm actually relieved in a way that you know um, he suffered tremendously in the last few months of his life, uh, and I think he's in a much better place. So I'm happy in that respect to the extent that you can be happy. I'm also happy that the stress on my wife, which was very very great in the last twelve months and had caused her a number of health issues uh, is still working its way through the system. And we're hoping that, you know, this year we'll be able to get to a better place because looking after an elderly person at home, I don't know if you've had that experience. I have, yep. To the end of life is traumatic and very, very draining on you emotionally. And you actually don't realize how much it's taken off you. Yes. My sister has Parkinson's and she's in her final weeks or months yeah i'm and sorry to hear that yeah but you know we go through that elizabeth kubler ross is on death and dying shock denial anger bargaining acceptance yeah and there's no sh short circuiting that we just have to go through it it takes as long as it takes and as i said in the bio i sent you i i you know i i'm in my philosophy of business and life i've always being the person with the positive motivation and instinct that that problem is solvable. It just needs to find, we need to find a creative way to solve it. And in the last two years, one of my great learnings was acceptance, which I wasn't very good at doing. Mm. And just looking at the family situation and, you know, how the kids dealt with their grandfather's illness and, how we had to, in the end, accept God's will, really, and yes. be there and care rather than look for cures and extension of life and all the other things that, you know, we in the Western world are very good at doing. That has kind of changed my perspective. And I'm now, I think, in some way, a better individual for that experience and for that journey. Right. I wrote my father-in-law a letter about three months before he passed and he was going through some terrible health issues. He was in a lot of pain and it was 10 great things I got from you. You know, he taught me how to, how to change the oil on the car and set the timing. And he drove a truck all his life. And, you know, he showed me how a man's supposed to take care of his family. There's a long list of things that gifts that he gave me. And I, and I mailed it off to him. And uh, my sister-in-law called me a week later and she said, I just had, just had lunch with dad and he had me read your letter out loud. He said he couldn't do it without crying. And he said, he wants you to read it as memorial. And wow. later, read it. I did. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And, and a number of gentlemen came up to me, one in particular. And he goes, I hope one day before I go, somebody writes a letter like that to me. <laughs> and I said, we're all going to go. Why don't you start the process by writing the letter to them? Right. And I've been able to do that with, uh, not with everyone, obviously, but uh, with a lot of the people in my life, uh, childhood friends, relatives, uh, you know, my, my mother, who is British, you know, but the first the first line in the letter to her was, you make a great cup of tea. And number 10 was, did I mention the tea? You know? And uh, so that's one way we can help bring closure and acceptance to the people we love who are, you know, passing on. And I because think it, it, it helps them in the process of accepting probably more easily their, uh, their challenges in their lives at that stage. Right. Well, we only say those things after they're gone. They don't get to hear them. Yep. That was my giant aha was send them 
to them while they're alive so you know how you know they know how you feel and the difference they made in your life and so i've been pretty diligent about that and it's been been transformative to be honest i had that opportunity with my father-in-law because there were days when i would uh say to my wife you're not going to see him today i'm going to see him today mm-hmm. and we'd get the bottle of scotch out and we'd talk about a few things and you know he'd always ask very searching questions to the very end and you know we'd talk about life's journey and some of the things that we had been through in our lives and and that was very and i didn't unfortunately because i was a lot younger then my father died about 15 years ago i didn't have the wisdom right uh, to have those conversations with my father, which, you know, who I was very close to, but, um, and he was also a very private man in many ways. So it was a little bit more difficult to have some of those conversations, but that's one of my regrets. I wished I had, you know, taken a little more time to spend with him in the last three months of his life and talked about stuff that, you know, was important to him and was important to me, which were were left unspoken. That's one of my regrets. Yes. And it's important to have those conversations. I, I remember I, I lost my father in 2005. And so I never got to write him that letter, but I think he knew. But near the end, you know, he was watching me with, at that time, our young sons. And Evan, I think, was three or four. And he turned to me. It was Father's Day. And he turned to me and he said, nobody can say you're not a good father. He said, what you've done with these boys is extraordinary. And he said, I'm proud of you. And that was one conversation I never forgot. Because every single child needs to hear those two magic words, love and proud. Mm. You know, and I could tell, I was watching you interact with your sons at Haven Hall. And it was obvious that, that you were proud of them. And they knew that. And, you know, as I said, fine, strapping young men, you know. And I saw the connection. I saw the love uh, that you had for your family. That was uh, that was the thing that I kind of took away. That and the delightful conversation we had, not unlike the one we're having now. Well, it's still delightful because we are sharing experiences, uh, Mark, at a deeper level in some way. I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let me let me ask you a question, which I'm fascinated about. Fire away. Um, where did you meet your wife? <laughs> I was working I just got out of the Air Force I was working in a record store a tiny little store she comes walking in and the manager who looked like Kenny Loggins after taxes he was about 5'4 and about 120 pounds he stopped me short and he said I got this and uh, of course she blew him off and she's like 6'1 in her heels and and then I noticed she was looking at me so I walked over and I said can I help you and I ended up selling her a Hollow Notes album and she paid by check and I circled the phone number. And uh, I said, now I have your number. And she blushed. And like a schmuck, I don't call her because I didn't think she'd go out with me. You know, this this classy lady. I just got out of the Air Force. I didn't have much. And uh, so she came back in the store about three days later and I asked her to the Hollow Notes concert. And then the manager uh, scheduled me to work that night when he found out I was going to concert with that girl. So my sister went on the first day with my future wife. what a lovely story oh and then so she comes she comes home from the con i was living in her house at the time and so uh, she launches into a concert review i said sue i don't care about any of that what's this girl like and she said well i've known all your other girlfriends if you don't marry this one you're an idiot she walked away (laughs) 
Women are a better judge of character than men. I can my tell big you that. sisters always had my back. Yeah. And we've been married 43 years. Yeah, we we'll, this will be our 40th year this year. Well, the 41st year is the worst, just so you know. Get past that, Goodness it's all me. downhill. <laughs> Goodness me, I don't believe you. <laughs> no. My publisher used to say that, Charlie Tremendous Jones. He would say, how long have you been married? And I said, 27 years, Charlie. He goes, oh, the 28th year is the worst. <laughs> so it didn't matter what year you gave him. It was always the next one's going to be the worst. He was married like 62 years to his wife. So, Wow. That's a bit uh, of a record. This has been a delight. So I have two final questions. What books had an impact on you and what advice would you offer? Because we have about three, four minutes here. I, I loved... Nelson Mandela's book, The Long Walk to Freedom, which was yes. uh, a really, really amazing book. In fact, I learned so much about um, humility and courage in that book that, you know, was was just unbelievable. I actually also enjoyed reading Margaret Thatcher's book about her life. Oh, interesting. Um, and what struck me there was how she came from a background where she could have gone in either direction in terms of her life but her the upbringing she had of her parents gave her so much in terms of inner strength that you know she was able to articulate stuff well hard work ethic all of those good things so those two people in some ways have brought different dimensions to my life and i i, I tend to read a lot of biographies and those are the way. two standing out uh, standout books that I've read, which, you know, have uh, kind of uh, helped me mold my own character in different ways. Well, I have one for you, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris. It won a Pulitzer. Teddy's one of I my will, heroes. I will make a note of that and, and read it. I'm, I'm about to head on a holiday, so that will be one that I'll be getting for my holiday. The other one is William Manchester's trilogy of Churchill, which, you know, they're 700 page tomes but wow he was you know uh, i started reading that and i found it exceptionally heavy so it's still on oh, the book it's oh it's a, it's a doorstop it's it's I heavy know. in a lot of ways it's yeah. Uh, yeah so it's still on it's still on the bookshelf like you know um simon sharma's history which is another great read where he goes through historical events in the last 300 years i don't know if you know the author simon sharma great historian no, but I'm gonna. Uh, we're gonna exchange book lists. I'll send you my favorite fifty, and you can send me yours. And I will do the same for you. Parting advice: one minute. Uh, what advice would you give aspiring leaders? I'd say three things to them. The first is take more time to listen than to talk. Mm. Second thing I would say is keep an open mind. We make so many decisions based on impulsive, quick decision-making. Right. That, and that's not cool. It may be cool in our culture, but that's not cool in the real world. And my third lesson is, is, is from my last experience of the last year of my life with my father-in-law being very ill. Courage and acceptance. There are things in life and in business that we cannot change by throwing money and burning energy. Let go of the things that you need to let go with acceptance and gratitude. Lewis, thank you so much, my friend. We're going to run out of time, the shot clock. I will be back in touch. We'll talk again soon.
And I hope we have an opportunity to meet again in that lovely hotel, Mark. A real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, my friend. GE Appliances and Air and Water Solutions is dedicated to serving the unique needs of the plumbing, heating, and ventilation and air conditioning industry. GE has launched a robust product portfolio that includes water heaters, water filtration, commercial HVAC, ductless, and ducted HVAC. The GE team is focused on putting the pros at the center of our business by delivering an iconic, trusted brand that is easy to sell, an innovation that makes installation easier, and dedicated to support that makes doing business simpler. At GE, we call this being pro-centric. To learn more and request information about GE, go to geappliancesairandwater.com. That's geappliancesairandwater.com. Thank you for listening. If I struck a chord, inspire you to action, or piqued your curiosity, let me know. Call or text me at 206-697-0454 or send me an email at mark at sparkingsuccess.net. Should you wish to hire me to speak to your organization or association or order one of my books, simply go to my website, 